Hey everyone, this is Mike Joseph, and I just wanted to say that I hope you enjoy the episode you're about to listen to. If you do, I kindly ask that you tell a friend about Detoxicity. Even better, please rate, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you're using to listen. I'm always on the hunt for new and interesting guests, and I like keeping in touch with those of you who listen. So, if you have a recommendation for a guest, or if you just want to know what I do day-to-day, follow me on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph, or on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, or both. You can even email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. On a less self-promotional tack, I really hope that you and yours are keeping yourselves and others safe during this pandemic, and even if you listen to this after the pandemic is over, there is no greater quality, in my opinion, than people who are empathetic and kind to others. Hell, it's a big reason I do this podcast in the first place. Enjoy the show, and be well. Hey everyone, before we get started, I want to drop a quick trigger warning in here, because while this podcast does cover a lot of heavy topics... This podcast is going to discuss suicide on a couple of occasions, and it's not the entire episode, but it is dropped in a few times over the course of this episode, and it sort of colors the background. So I want to give you the option to opt in or opt out of listening to this episode. I hope you do, but I understand if you don't. So if you or someone that you care about is struggling with suicidal ideation or they need help, A, it's really important that you love them and listen to them and take them seriously. And what you do from there could be a few different things. Could take them to the ER, make sure they go to the ER, you can call uh, 911, and you can call one of a bunch of different hotlines uh, that are related to suicide prevention. Um, And I don't, I'm not going to give you all of them, but uh, the main one, as I'm sure you all know from the Logic song at this point, is 1-800-273-8255. Once again, I urge you, if anyone reaches out to you discussing suicidal ideation, take it seriously. Number is 1-800-273-8255. So in this episode, I am talking to Kenny Roby. Uh, Kenny is a singer-songwriter and he's a musician, uh, originally from the Carolinas, now based in upstate New York. Last August, he released a critically acclaimed album called The Reservoir. I discovered Kenny through my friend Kevin, who appeared in episode 32 a couple months back. Um, Kenny and I cover a ton of ground in an hour or so. Uh, He got married young. He raised two boys. He's a proud dad. Uh, He's uh, been a musician for pretty much his entire life, and he supported his music career by doing everything from massage therapy to office work. Uh, as, our, as part of our conversation, we talk about how devalued working musicians are in our culture. Uh, this is a topic that has come up previously. And we also talk about personal upheaval, uh, metaphorical upheaval, and literal upheaval as he left the Carolinas and moved on up to New York. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, we also talk about addiction and suicidal ideation and how Kenny has dealt with those things, as well as the pain he felt when he lost his friend and collaborator, Neil Casal, who was supposed to produce The Reservoir. Here's Kenny's story. My name is Kenny Roby. I am a songwriter. Originally, I was raised in South Carolina and lived for a long time in North Carolina. And now I live in upstate New York in Woodstock. Been doing it for a long time. Started playing, singing in a punk rock band when I was 15. So I'm almost 49 now, next week. So uh, Hey, happy birthday. Thanks. Been doing it for, for a few minutes now. Started off as just a singer and then and writing lyrics in the band that I was in as a teenager. And then I picked up guitar and started to do more of my own songwriting. And, and then eventually left that band and started to van six string drag. 
in South Carolina and North Carolina and did that for on and off for 20 years. And I've got band records. I've, I've done solo records as well. So I guess I have 11 or 12 records out total between both projects. So music has always been your only thing. There's never been a job in between. Oh no, there's been a lot of jobs, <laughs> you know, like most musicians, I'm sure there's an actor waiter joke here somewhere, but a, a musician dishwasher, the irony, you know, of washing dishes with hands that you play instruments with, you lose all your calluses. But yeah, I, I mean, I've done everything since I was a teenager, worked in restaurants, worked in bars, worked in coffee shops. I was a massage therapist for seven years. Really? Um, yeah. In my adult life, I worked at an insurance company in the mailroom for like a few years. And then I moved up in a couple of steps to be like a project development, technical, like administrative assistant. It's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I have two sons who are now 20 and 23. So at one point I was taking a break from music and was like one of their baseball coaches. And they were both kind of showcase level. One of them played in college, uh, left-handed pitchers. So oh, wow. I've, like I've done a lot of stuff. You have done a lot of yeah, stuff. A lot, uh, a lot, along with music and sometimes taking a break from music. So at times, and I was a stay-at-home dad for them or with them for, for a few years on and off when they were young. So yeah, a lot of hats. <laughs> That's in today's world. I feel like everyone has to wear multiple hats, sometimes multiple hats at a time. Yeah, in, in a lot of fields, but definitely in entertainment. You know, it's as soon as they figured out that we could do more, then more was put on us to do, <laughs> especially with sort of the the downfall of some aspects of the music business and less studios and people home recording and just the technology being able to, you know, to book yourself through emails or build your own websites. I mean, I'm not necessarily great at all that, but I've done it so much of it, you know. Like, oh, I got to figure out how to edit these videos or I got to figure out how to do this just, you know, because it's just necessary. There's less money there has been in the music business and in the entertainment business to hire people to do that. The onus of that is sort of on the artist or members of bands or on management, you know, things you used to be able to hire out for. Sure. It's sort of, it's it's like diminishing, it's the whatever the opposite of trickle down economics. <laughs> I don't really know the term for it, but you know, it's like as soon as that money was not available through record sales and labels doing well enough to sort of have that money flow through other things, you know, it, the, the job became so much more for a lot of people and they had to wear so many more hats. And then there was not jobs for a lot of people. And then those people had to adjust, whether it's through web development or recording engineers, studios, whatever, you know, camera, you know, I mean like camera yeah. operators and filmmakers and, you know, video makers, it's like the artists and their friends make that stuff now. Everything's so simple from a technological perspective the way it was not 20, 25, 30 years ago. So yeah. a lot of a lot of positions have become obsolete in that yeah. time. And that's great. And that's been empowering for a lot of people in a lot of ways. And also been kind of, you know, there's a downside of that. There's of course back and unintended consequences of that, you know. And sure. and that's kind of a, a shame for a lot of people. And and maybe in some ways that takes away from people getting really great at things, you know, sort of so many jacks of all trades and jills of all trades, so to speak. And masters of none. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, you're not, 
somebody can't just be a songwriter. You know, back in the 30s or 40s or even 50s and 60s in Nashville or New York, professional songwriters like Tom T. Hall and those guys, or, or even, you know, back in Nashville in the 60s would just go to work and write songs or, you know, Cole Porter or whoever. You just worked. You it just was worked. an office Hard. job the way being a, an IT person was a dated, you know, was a, a job. Yeah, you showed up at work and did job and, you know, and then you went home. You know, even a bit with my generation, you know, like back in Six String Drag, I had a publishing deal and it was somewhat my job. I didn't write songs for other people, but it was my job to, to make music and to write and to try to make money for someone else doing right. it as well. And now that's just so, so very hard. But, you know, like there's got, like even just the generation or two before me, like guys like Randy Newman, just working songwriters. You know? Sure. Somebody like Carol King, who from like a teenager, her job has always been songwriter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, you know, same with it's, I guess, because I'm a little bit older and I know some people who are, you know, in their 40s, 50s and 60s. I still know plenty of people who make a living just at being a studio musician, but it's harder and harder. They have to sort of be a jack of all trades in a lot of ways as well, you sure. know. That, that that's sort of a dying breed as well, just to be like a bass player who just plays on records, you know? Um, totally. And, you know, so less less specific skill set for people. Were you always, was music always your focus? Were you like a four-year-old kid with a guitar? Or? No, no, no. Well, I was, but I just held it for the pictures. <laughs> I literally have a picture next to me as like a four or five-year-old, like with like a cowboy hat and like a vest and like somebody's cheap Sears guitar. <laughs> but yeah, my family was pretty musical. My dad was, he wasn't like a gospel choir director. He was like a Southern Catholic choir director and a baritone and bass singer. My sisters and brothers sang. My mom played piano. My mom and my sister Kathy were the only piano players, the only like musicians in the family. The rest of them were more vocalists. It's kind of funny that I didn't do it till I was a teenager, really. And then I'm like one of the few that like sort of does it for a living. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was, I was into whatever. I was into art. I was into sports. And then when I when I was an early to mid teenager, I really started getting into skateboarding. And like I said, I was in a punk rock band. So that was like my whole thing for a few years was to skate. And I thought, you know, I could barely do squat on a skateboard, but I still had this idea I could become a pro skateboarder. And then Rodney Mullen came around and showed everybody how to do really fancy tricks. And that, that was out. <laughs> were, you, were you just like, no, I'm not, I, this not is not me. Did front side airs and carbs were really out the door. No, but th that was just sort of daydreaming in, in middle school and high school. And I'd already started to play music. I didn't really think about much else, you know, just probably just getting high and playing music and skateboarding like a lot of teenagers. teenagers yeah, I mean, that sounds, that checks out. That's a teenager. That's pretty much it, you know. And I didn't really do college. I did a little bit of college, but for the most part, it was it was always music. And then I got married and had kids, and I still did music, but I just sort of did, sort of branched out a little bit. So if I'm doing my math right, you got married fairly young, younger than I guess in 2020, 2021 would be the average for a person. Yeah, I, well, yeah, these days, people, I think in a lot of, a lot of ways, people are a little bit older when they have kids and get married, but I was, I think I was 20, I was 25 
what made you sort of shift? Because the music you're making now is not punk rock, obviously. So starting out as a teenager in a punk band and making what you make now, which is, you know, folky, country-ish, you know, very acoustic sounding, lyrically haunting in a lot of ways. What, where'd that switch come into place? Was there never a question about like where you segmented yourself or, or you know, do you kind of view it all as sort of one, you know, one thing? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, hmm. Sort of the, the common thread there with this, the punk rock thing and, and country in a, in a broader sense is it's all sort of, you know, just like the blues, it's two or three chords in the truth and pretty straightforward, simple stuff in that way. I, I always, I would say always, but even at a young age, I always liked country and bluegrass and sort of hillbilly music. And, and also I was really into hip hop and R&B and stuff in the eighties. And so I just kind of liked a lot, like a lot of musicians, like so many different things. And friends of mine were playing in bands that would play a punk rock song, like, or they do a Ramones cover and then they do a Buck Owens cover. And we were the same way. And it was just kind of, it didn't really matter. It was kind of, punk rock to do a hillbilly song you know and okay. so, right. like you frustrated like all the other the punk rock kids at the shows you're like they're like what the hell's going on here <laughs> so yeah rebelling against your own audience a little bit the ultimate punk rock thing yeah that's um, super punk know, rock the cow punk thing there was bands that were doing that stuff they were like x and and green on red and so th there was people doing that kind of thing the blasters people in that scene but you know back when i was a teenager people just everybody played with each other just like everybody hung out with each other if you weren't a jock and you were somewhat outside the mainstream is just sort of what the kind of stuff you were into whether it was the music you were into or doing drugs or drinking or whatever it was as a teenager you really just stuck together in a small town you know it wasn't like and grow up in a big city you right. know and i grew up in a small town college town in the south and you just kind of stuck together so it was like i had one buddy who thought he was jim morrison and another buddy who you know who wanted to be Johnny Rotten or Sid Vicious. And then, you know, it's the next person's like a hippie. And then there's these couple of friends of mine who, you know, were super gothy or whatever. It's just like, sure. sudden, everybody just hung with each other. And so it wasn't, it was always eclectic. None of it was a big jump from me music to jump around to different styles, you know? And, and I like a lot of stuff like Doug Somm and a lot of artists. I mean, even the Beatles and the Stones that just kind of jump around styles a lot. I mean, that's always been my favorite stuff. I don't generally want to listen to multiple records by an artist and they all, all the same. Yeah, I mean, some of it's fine. You know, there's some people who are just great at stuff and like country stuff and it's great. But generally, you know, I like sort of an eclectic mix, especially in my sort of rock and roll world. Uh, I don't like a rock and roll to just be one thing. You grew up in a small town and what was presuming the, you know, sort of the being able to, co to connect with different groups of people or everybody kind of being, everybody hanging out together being one thing, but what was the coolest thing to you about growing up in a small community as opposed to a big city? You know, I think it was good because I could experiment and not get into too much trouble <laughs> because there's sort of a somewhat of an accountability. It's sort of like the equivalent of a neighborhood in New York City. It's like you got to watch out the neighborhood's kind of looking out for you or telling your mom stuff or whatever. Right. But, but 
but it was small enough to where I could get around without a car or, you know, I could walk downtown and all of that's good and bad. You know, I could hang out and with people a lot older than me, like college students or friends who were in their twenties when I was in my teens and, and you sort of sneak around a lot and get into some trouble, but not, not crazy amounts of trouble, but I liked, I liked this. Like I said, it was sort of catch 22. It was cool that it was small and you knew everybody and sort of sucked that it was small and you knew everybody. You couldn't hide, you know, Right. everybody knew your stuff, you know, even though you pretended that they didn't, they did, you know, but I kind of like that too. Just transportation was nice, you know. I grew up in New York, so being able to not deal with transportation with some of my friends who grew up in other places where it's like, oh, we need a car to drive anywhere, we need a car to see civilization, any of that stuff, that just feels super foreign to me. So it was sort of the same. I was in such a small town, it was like being in a neighborhood in New York City. You know, it was like I could get places on my bike or skateboard, you know, as opposed to living like out in the country, you know it takes forever or way out in some ways where there's no public transportation. You're just kind of stuck in the suburb. And what necessitated the move or what brought about the move all the way up to upstate New York? Well, my ex-wife and I split up a couple of years ago and it was, you know, my kids were, were out of the house and I just wanted to just explore just living other places, you know? And I, I was considering living out West the last couple of summers, I'd, not this summer, obviously due to COVID, but the last few summers I toured solo out West, California and, and Oregon and Washington and just loved it out there. And I considered moving out there. And I was actually, you know, Neil Casal was supposed to produce my record and I was gonna stay at his place a little bit before we made the record out West. We were supposed to make it at Mill Valley, Stinson Beach area outside San Francisco. And, and yeah, when Neil passed away, we decided to do the record here in Woodstock because it was just closer. A lot of the guys playing on the record were from New York and from the Northeast. And so when we decided to do it up here, I came a few weeks early and met some folks and knew some folks in this area a couple and and some and I knew lots of folks in New York City and I just kind of fell in love with it and we made the record here I explored the area some more and uh, yeah I, I had an opportunity to stay at a friend's place outside of Woodstock for a few months and was getting just decided to give it a shot and then I just decided to get a place like during the pandemic I was like well I'm here so I found a place closer to town in Woodstock and it's great. I love it up here. I can, with less than a few hours from New York City, if if it ever opens back for me. Soon. <laughs> um, yeah, soon. Hopefully. I've been back a few times, but just a couple of you know, times. It was funny, I guess the last day in February was, was right before all of this hit the fan. Yeah. Uh, playing with the, my, the group of guys I play with opening for Circles Around the Sun at Brooklyn Bowl. And, you know, and I came back up here after that and just everything just went to hell. So I've only been back to the city just to like drop in for a minute. I did a live stream. So I'm looking forward to that. But anyway, it's, you know, being close to the city and then also just it's so beautiful up here, just traveling around and hiking and just going on long drives. It's just, I just like to drive around a lot. Right on. Are you... Yeah. Is, are you like an outdoorsy guy? I, I've seen pictures on your Instagram and you're like in the mountains and it's, it's yeah. very, very picturesque. 
Yeah, it's, I have, I am, and I have been more, even more lately. I think traveling solo the last few summers, I, I've become sort of, I've, I've figured out a way to take the pressure off the music business side of touring solo, and that's to just make it an adventure and just, you know, break out into a show every once in a while. Just like go and travel and be sort of a tourist and explore outdoor places and national parks and state parks and just scenery all over the country and then just do shows as well to help supplement my travel. It's go. It takes the pressure off of, of having to quote unquote succeed with the tour, you know, and I can do that as a solo artist a lot easier when I'm out traveling or a buddy of mine will meet me somewhere and we'll drive for a week together. I've done that before. So That's awesome. That sounds fun. And it is. And that, and that way, like I said, there's not too much pressure. It's real easy to feel like a failure in this business, you know, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. Because yeah. Always, you know, it's Sisyphean. You're just always pushing that rock up the hill. And if just life in general, it's just, it's, it's, it's nice. I can be a lot more grateful that way that I try I'm looking at the things that I do have is this beautiful scenery and I'm making this long drive and I have time to make the drive and I get to look at all this cool stuff around me and then I'm going to play a show tonight or I'm taking the night off or whatever and I'm going to I have a, a minivan that I have a bed in that I can sleep in like you know in the mountains like when I travel or wherever I am or I can get a hotel or whatever it's just not I'm very lucky in that way. And also it's just the way I look at it. I was just, you know, it got to be pretty miserable touring around, having to sort of have a goal to achieve something or get a certain amount of people out to the show or make a certain amount of money and all that stuff. It just becomes, you know, I didn't get into this to be a regular grind, you know? And so I feel like it's a successful day if I was content at the end of the day and I was grateful and I got to see beautiful things, you know, and as opposed to looking at a number sheet at the end of the day, you know, how many ticket sales. I love that. How, how long did it take you to obtain that level of perspective? And was there a moment when you were like, Oh shit, I have to change my method of thinking because I'm, I'm not feeling good about myself right now. Well, I think, well, part of it was, you know, I had a regular job, I was still playing regionally in the Southeast, but I was for a couple of years towards before I went back to quote unquote, being full time at this, I had an opportunity to help a friend of mine run one of his coffee shops on campus at Duke University. And, but that was only for when school was in session. So I would have two or three weeks off during semester breaks and I have summers off. And so it's sort of flipped in a way to where I really didn't, I really only had to break even at best, you know? And then I've sort of, I just sort of kept that mentality. Once I did that switch where it's like, oh, I'm not working anyway for the next two months. Let me just go travel and I visit people I know and just sort of make a vacation out of it. It's, I, I hope when the pandemic is over and I'm back to it, I can kind of keep that attitude. I think I can, you know? It um, just, just feels like such a good attitude to have because a lot of the people I know who have jobs, doesn't matter whether they're, I think it's, it's more prominent with people who are artistic, but it's all about the grind and these numbers have to be made. And there's a level, like sometimes sort of a, an inaccurate level of level setting. There's all of this stuff when I think there's, 
an event for a lot of people or a series of events that ultimately makes them realize they're satisfied or dissatisfied. And then they get to a, a critical point where it's like, oh shit, how do I make what I do work for me and be happy with the things that I'm doing? And it sounds like you got to a point where you were like, okay, this is cool. Yeah, absolutely. It was just a shift. It was partially that it just happened that way and partially that I'm just holding on to it. And yeah, I think there's, it's very easy to be really hard on yourself when you work for yourself, you know, and if you're the type of person that's hard on yourself, then yeah, you, you can be a workaholic a little bit on your actions, but you can be a workaholic in your head. You, just be, <laughs> you know, because you don't have it, you know, if you were sort of raised that way where people were sort of beating you up for not doing the right thing or where your self parenting becomes the same thing, you know? And so you sort of knock yourself down a lot and you become like a really crappy coach and parent and boss to yourself when you work for yourself. So, you know, what I try to do is have some discipline, but have some flexibility in that, you know, not be like just a crazy kid running around doing whatever I want, but also enjoying some of the freedom of working for myself, you know, so that it takes self-discipline, you know, and good, parenting and coaching and bossing of myself. Of yourself, um, right? Not always great, but. <laughs> well, hopefully you have people in your life that can sort of be the next level down in terms of checking, you know, you check yourself, but then you've got people who keep you in check as well. Yeah, surround yourself with folks like that. Yeah, and, and be accountable, you know? And so now I, I, I think about selling records and doing well to some degree more in the sense of to sort of honor the people that are helping me, you know, to make sure if they're putting money and time and energy and my fans and friends and family, all that to sort of honor all that and, and myself by working hard and hard at it, you know, or doing like, if there's things that I don't really want to do, like if I'm sitting there going, man, I'm tired of posting this crap on Instagram <laughs> of promotion, or even if it's, you know, even if it's not just that, like, to look at things honestly and go like, okay, I probably need to not get hung up on something, not have hangups about something or, or a little embarrassment or like to sort of turn something that could just be a hang up or like something I'm uncomfortable with into something that's positive by going, you know, I'm committed to this. This label's putting out my record. This My manager's helping me with this. People put money into my crowdfunding. I'm going to get over myself here. And I'm going to post some pictures on Instagram of what I'm going doing that day rather than just dropping out, you know, because it's easy to do. And it's easy to, to turn a hang up into a principle, you know. And the older I get, the you know, the more I realize like what, what to, the, to differentiate between the two. Like, am I just uncomfortable with this or is it a principle? You know, is this an ethical thing or, you know, if that makes sense. Totally you know? makes sense. I, I, I feel the same way about a lot of things. And I'm, I'm only five years younger than you are. So I sort of get the whole, with age, you start to wonder about the things that you feel inhibited by mm -hmm. and are like to yourself, am I, am I full of shit or am I right to be inhibited by these things? Like, are they real inhibitions for a reason or am I just stuck in a feedback loop in my own head over something that I've got to hang up about? 
Yeah. And that's, that's a, you know, that is something that I struggle with a lot, like existentially, philosophically, whatever, you know, I mean, and, and I read about some of this stuff, you know, like books about sort of early childhood development and things like that. And, and some sort of non diagnostic manual versions of psychology, you know, I didn't study psychology, but, but, you know, in self-help books and philosophy and spirituality and things like that. And, and to sort of, it's how would you know like it's so hard like we are what we're conditioned to be we are 100 percent this way you know this way some of it just through being human and some of it through being in society and some of it with our parenting and and then are perpetuating these things by building skills at certain things and running from certain things and embracing certain things it's just like we're sort of screwed <laughs> in a lot of ways by the time we're our age you know and that's not being nihilistic. It's sort of just being realistic and going, okay, now I know that. What do I really have control over? Like, sure. what, really, what is really real? You know, what it, what is really, what is this, what is, is this just a narrative? Is this something I'm taught? You know, it's, a, and so, you know, it's a constant evaluation and at the same time looking at it, like looking at it critically, but also looking at it softly too, just like holding on tightly to something and letting go or, or holding it loosely as well. You know, it's, it's the constant balance of that and working on that. It's from moment to moment sometimes, you know? I don't know if people realize enough, and this, this might be one of the things in my head, I don't think we believe enough as people that we are works in progress. We think we're fixed and there's no moving forward. But mm -hmm. every day, I feel like you can be a different person or a different version, a better version sure. of what you were the day before. Yeah, I think, and, and you know, there's the, there's an Alan Watts quote, quote that uh, Alan Watts quote: "You're under noble obligation to be the same person you were 15 minutes ago, or five minutes ago, or whatever it is." And and it's so true. At the same time, like I said, you're sort of programmed a certain way, you're conditioned a certain way, and when I remember that, it allows me to be forgiving of the thing I just did or said or or who I am or my person, mostly my personality. It's not who I am. Because what I am is a weird light that shines through this weird bag of skin and bones <laughs> talking to you right now. You know, it's my personality I'm working with, the things I say and my actions and, you know, my perspectives that, that I'm sort of working with here. And when I remember that conditioning, even if I don't understand it and know how to trace it back to what it is, to know it's there, it helps me sort of forgive myself and be compassionate towards myself and especially to other people. If I can remember that they're just fallible creatures that are stumbling through life as well and learning and trying to grow. Some of them I keep a distance from because <laughs> I don't like their growth pattern, but mostly it, it, that, it really helps me to sort of be a little bit kinder to those people a little bit and to myself a little bit. Progress. Like yeah. they say, it's, it's all about progress and, and the realization of those things. And it's, it's super important. And I think people really need to hear that. Musically speaking, you did mention uh, that you were working with Neil and I, I would have to imagine you were a little bit stunned by what transpired and you wrote a song for him clearly or dedicated to him on your new album. I think for a lot of people who have considered taking their own lives like what does it feel like to be 
close to somebody who made that decision, I guess. I, I don't know what the exact question is. It just feels like I'm looking at it two ways. As someone who has definitely thought about it before and as someone who has lost people before, you know, just kind of what, what does that do to your head? It, it affected me on multiple levels. One of the reasons Neil said that he wanted to work on this record was not only because he he saw something like of the of a style and quality that he wanted to be involved with from you know what he told me but also that he could relate to it a lot so i was obviously struggling with things that he was struggling with and he would say those kind of things to me like in text like i would send him a song and he would go man you that's my life like whatever I was writing that I was struggling with. So like, not only did, you know, I write a couple of songs with Neil in mind when, after he passed, but some of this stuff was written with him and me in mind a little bit while we were going through it. Like I didn't know all the details, but I knew he was struggling and, and, and he related to a lot of these songs and, and some of the sort of darker aspects of them. And then some of the things that he was getting something out of them from me trying to make sort of a positive change out of some of the pain that I was dealing with, with losing some other friends and with my separation and just sort of a, for lack of a better word, mental breakdown that I was going through at times, especially, you know, right before he passed away. And I was just coming out of some of that stuff and feeling better and working on sort of my mental health and recovery aspects of life and starting to feel a little bit stronger. And then he killed himself and what's weird is I, I thought he was doing better you know like I said I didn't know all the specifics but I knew he was struggling but he was really excited you know which is what happens from what I you know from what I, I'm told and what I understand is sort of he was you know he was doing a lot better he was excited about projects he was working on and he wasn't besides he dropped out a little bit from communication at times in the last month before he died it, it more came in uh, fits and starts but for the most part he seemed like really excited about the stuff he was working on i know he was frustrated with a lot of other stuff going on but he seemed like he was coming out of it and it was it was really a shock um to the system just as a friend, cause I'd known him for, you know, since the mid nineties. And then for somebody that I'd been back in touch with, you know, for, for like the last six months or so, and been in touch with him a lot more than I had previously, you know, since we hung out more 20 years before. And, you know, we would still be in communication at times here and there and through Gary or, or we have the same manager and good friend, Gary Waldman, you know, and so we would be in touch here and there and I would go see him and stuff. But just the last couple of years, I'd started to like when he would come through Raleigh with hardworking Americans or Chris Robinson Brotherhood, I would go and have dinner with him or go record shopping or hang out a little bit. And we started to text each other more. And so, and especially with him working on my record, it would be able to text each other 20, 30 times a day about sure. songs and trading song lists. And so it was, he was kind of back in, we were back in each other's lives. And so there was the shock of that sort of separation and, and also just artistically, you know, because he was supposed to produce my record. So it was just so 
there was a lot, you know, with that. And like you said, I, I struggled with some, you know, suicidal thoughts myself in the, the, in that time. And what was really strange was you would think that having a friend who's close to you kill themselves would scare you into not wanting to do that. But it actually didn't. It actually showed me a way out. I mean, it not showed me a way out like I wanted to do it, but it actually went, hmm, like it became like, I don't know about more of an option, but it's just surprisingly didn't really scare me. Like into not like it, it, in a in a lot of ways it did, but in a, but in some ways it didn't. You know, it did it like, make it feel more realistic in a way? Yeah, like it felt more real. Like, like oh, that is a possibility. It was less abstract. I guess you, yeah, you kind of nailed it with that. I think it was just less abstract. And I had a moment, you know, a couple of weeks after he died, where before the tribute, like oh, ten days to two weeks or so before the tribute, that I was doing like. I was doing a lot better and I wasn't in this much pain from my own stuff. And then from him dying, I was just sort of, it wasn't, I was, but, but I didn't feel like it was in any danger. And then I just started having like thoughts, like on like a balcony. I haven't talked to many people about this. Like I was at a balcony at the beach and I had to move down to a lower level in the balcony because I, I scared myself. Like I just had the urges like standing there and I'm like, whoa, where's that? Because it wasn't anything like, oh my gosh, I feel terrible. I want to end this pain. This is how I could do it. It wasn't like that. I was worried that like the devil in me, whatever, for lack of a better term, or that, that whether that's addiction or whether that's sort of the dragon, as they call it, that's inside you that would allow me to like do that impulse. And it wasn't that impulse that people say like they can't stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. There's a term for that. I forgot what it is, but like afraid of like trying it just to see like, oh, I'll check this out. You right. know, having the, the urge to jump. It wasn't like that. It was more like a voice in my head just saying, screw, jump. You know what I mean? And I'm like, whoa. And that's the thing. And much like addiction and, you know, stuff like that and alcoholism and other mental health issues. It, it will blindside you. It will come out of nowhere when you think you're doing just fine. It's like when people relapse with drinking or drugs, sometimes it's not when anything's going on. It's when things are going right, you know, when yep. things seem okay. And yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, but- It does. It does. I, I relate to a lot of that too. It's really, it's it's really some strange stuff, you know? And so- the way that I got through a lot of it was just start to share about it. You know, I would share whether it was with small groups of people or with, with friends. And I would just, I just decided that the embarrassment or the fear of exposing myself was not as important as getting through as, as, as exposing it, you know, and putting it out on the floor. And because that's like the worst is when you, when you feel alone and you're isolated and you feel like nobody understands you and like they won't get it. Like how do you prove to somebody that you really are serious about it besides doing it? Like, how do you do it? And so when you, when you want to share about it and then somebody doesn't get it, it feels like a smack in the face a bit. It feels like that you're like, you're already feeling sort of for lack of a better term, like, 
invalidated and isolated and all that stuff. And then if somebody doesn't really believe you, it's, it's awful. It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible feeling and, and it makes you feel even more isolated to not be understood and to not identify with people or have them identify with you. So it's, it's really important to find people who, who sort of get you and understand where you're coming from. And, and at the same time, understand that you need a sort of a safe space and spot and people to be around to share that with who are going to respect that that's a tendency or a thought and then not always be worried about you too, to understand you are sharing this safely. So you aren't in danger, if that makes sense. It's you like, have articulated something I have been trying to say for 20 years. Yeah. I, <laughs> you just blew my mind. Because I, I have had, I very often feel misunderstood or not taken, not taken seriously is probably not the right terminology to use. Unheard. Mm -hmm. And I do wish, and this is just part of what I do around mental health, that more people kind of understood what went on in the head of what goes on in the heads of people who deal with this on a regular basis. Like, mm -hmm. it's not for attention. It's not, you know, like, it, it, this is very real stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of times when people reach out, they're not looking for a solution. They are looking for empathy. You know, yeah. they're looking for just somebody. It's like, if I say I'm going through shit, I don't expect the person I'm talking to to fix my life. But I, I hope that they list, just listen and try to understand. Yeah. yeah that, and that nails it as well. You just want to be heard. You right. Know, you just want to be. And they, you, nobody can understand you and, and, or understand me. And I can't articulate it. It's so abstract. It's a darkness. It's a feeling. It's not a depression necessarily. I don't know what it is. You know, I was actually talking to my therapist the other day that the probably one of the songs that I came even close to articulating it to anyone is I wrote a song on my previous solo record, Memories of Birds, called The Short Mile or A Short Mile. And it's it's someone trying, it, it was, I was going through something and I did it sort of from another character's perspective, but, but I was sort of like going through something and I, I just wish that I could explain it to friends or my wife or anything at the time. And, and it was almost like a, it's almost like trying to, and I've never been a veteran of a, of a war or, or been through that experience, but I would imagine it's those kind of things. Like it's a PTSD, like it's, it's like a, you can't explain that to somebody who's never felt it, you know, sure. been through that situation or um, just like if you've never had a parent or a child die, you can never like, you, it's a club that you can't describe to someone. And, and, you know, the, some of the lyrics in that song, are, it's, it's a cough that won't go away, chasing chronic ache. It's itching skin for no reason and a fever that won't break you. It's, a, it's the dog barking at the air, the scent of a stranger's hair. It's, it's an old gator at the fair with no tickets to see it. You know, it's just like, it's the undescribable. Mm -hmm. Really, you just want people to listen to your song, so to speak. You want, you know, want people to feel, 
to just understand or attempt to under, not even understand to attempt to understand and justify your experience that it is an experience that and somebody has you know, to some degree and that's and so it's it's the issue is trying to explain it you know and you just like and you do it in music some and, and people identify and i think some people have been identified with this record my newest record in that way where it's just it's pretty straightforward just a lot of times me just finding ways to go oh this hurts <laughs> and then people are like oh yeah i hear that <laughs> me right. too you know people just want to say me too like i get it you know or I, I get something like that and yeah it's not about being understood it's about being heard i think and not being invalidated and not trying to be fixed because i'm not broken i'm human you know I'm not. I used to think I, I, I kind of was, you know, and, and I, anytime I hear people say that, I really, I don't want to fix them. Like uh, I try to remind them, you know, well, if you think you're broken, if it's a sort of disease of perception, you know, then, then you kind of are. And if you don't think you are, maybe you're not, I don't know. That's not necessarily a hundred percent true, but, sure. but part of the problem is thinking that you're broken. You know, or or at least for me, part of the problem was thinking I was broken or I was screwed up or whatever. It's like, no, I'm a human being that's fallible, that I've made a lot of mistakes through my lack of understanding, my lack of compassion, my lack of consideration, my lack of skill, my lack of knowledge and my lack of experience, you know, and that's something, you know, that I've, there's a few Buddhist writers who talk about lack of skill. I was unskilled instead of saying I was bad at something instead of shaming ourselves for, you know, mistakes that we made. It's, it's crucial to survival, you know? Yeah. It's, that's sort of a good driving uh, and it's, and it's crucial to survival as well. It's a good you know? word replacement. It is. It's really, and, and that's something I think the language we speak to ourselves, especially at least for me has been a huge change of two, you know, two sides of the same coin, you know, not to, as they say, praise and blame, you know, not blame myself for, for everything that goes bad and not to praise myself for everything that goes good. You know, it's just sort of just be a little more realistic, you know, <laughs> and, and to not talk about myself unless it's just stage humor, you know, <laughs> and too much self-deprecation, you know, because it's like, it's, I think some of that's a preemptive strike, you know, let me oh, yeah. beat myself up so you don't beat me up. Oh yeah. And so, cause I'd rather just deal with that than the fear of like, it's coming out of nowhere. You know, I think there's part of that. And there's that whole thing of, you know, I, I would never, I probably wouldn't talk to you the way I talk to myself, you know, and I probably wouldn't let you talk to me. <laughs> right. I talk to myself sometimes right. too, right. You know, like beating myself up or being that hard on myself. I would, I would be a lot better of a parent to myself or, you know, or to, if you came to me with something, I would be a lot better, <laughs> less hard on you than I would on myself. So, right. Yeah. That's, that's a human nature thing that this is the second time someone has said something like that to me in the last week. I'm going to take that to heart. Yeah. Two, two more questions for you, which might be quick questions, might not be quick questions. How much you're in a, you're coming to the conclusions in at this point in your life that you've got stuff you need to deal with and you're dealing with it. How much of the not doing that before was due to 
just sort of the general conditioning of, hey, I'm a guy, like, I'm not supposed to have feelings, I'm not supposed to be unsure of things, like, I just don't, you know, I, w- I want to keep this stuff in. I don't consciously do that. I think more of, with me, it's a little bit more of, like, not emotionally what we express or what we don't express, like, as as men in our Western society, but it's more like my training of you know, certain roles that I'm quote unquote supposed to have, whether it's to be a breadwinner or to be the baseball coach, like I was saying, or to be the man of the family and, you know, things like that. I've, I've struggled with, with all that stuff because I was a stay at home dad, you know? And so I felt extra less than sometimes because, well, I wasn't a woman and didn't have like some of the maternal instincts of of raising my kids and when I was doing that. And then also I I wasn't the breadwinner. So I felt less than with that, you know, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with in a nuclear family or whatever that the woman making more money than the man and the man doing more like just picking up jobs. There's nothing absolutely intellectually wrong with that. Not at all. Emotionally, like the way I was raised or the way society does that, it's still easy to feel less than. It's kind of like, you know, the when, when baseball, play, now baseball players and the athletes are so, you know, they're so elevated in society, but you know, when they were just bums riding on the train across the country, you know, in the, in the turn of the century and just working class bums, you know, it was just considered they were like children, you know? And, and so I, I think sort of as musicians, especially in Western culture and especially in America, you're there, celebrities are praised, but not day-to-day musicians. And, and and like smaller entertainers or writers or artists or creators, it's like on a on the top level, it's held up in high regard and and it's a high paying job. But on in a working class level, it's not a respected. And maybe that's my projection, you know, because it wasn't as much in my in my well, my parents love music. It was still like a oh well, if that doesn't work out, you can just get a real job, right? it's still like there, there had to be a real fallback plan, you know? And, and so I still, I was like, even though I, I was a musician, I still felt like I wasn't, like I wasn't good enough, you know? Like it wasn't, I wasn't being a man enough or I wasn't, you know, bringing enough bread or stability. You know, I was possibly creating more chaos and instability than I was, than I was giving, but that's because the system, the value systems twisted all around. Oh yeah. And, and I have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to convince myself it was important that my kids had a father who followed some of his passions and was able to still keep the fort down or help keep the fort down and do some of my jobs as a parent, as well as all that stuff. So yeah, it's, it, it, it takes a lot of work. It's especially in the U S you know, it's not look, you know, it's not looked up, it's not looked uh, up to. I have a lot of issues with Western culture and I think sort of the assigned gender roles thing in now that I'm older and can kind of understand things differently. It just seems so silly. It is, but it's so 
it's so ingrained in us. Oh yeah. You know? And I don't know, I'm probably not articulating it that very well, but it's, and I've talked to other musicians who, who feel this sort of the same way as far as like male musicians, they're out traveling, they're out whatever, and they still kind of feel less than even ones that do really, really well that are making like a good living at it and providing a lot of financial support and stability for their families still kind of feel a little bit less than because they were trained to either, you know, be a university professor or a lawyer or a doctor or a factory worker. And, you know, musicians are just kind of, there's still a thing about it being artists, like being like selfish sort of losers, you know? know? It's a weird polar opposite kind of thing. I think there are, and I don't have a good perspective on this because I've worked in music my entire life. Mm -hmm. It's like either you're Beyonce or John Mayer or, or somebody like that, or you're just like practicing to be, Beyonce or John Mayer for a lot of people like they don't see like that there's a very full like middle class I guess you would call it of people who travel the country travel the world playing music and make decent money they're not millionaires or billionaires they don't always have number one records but it's Mm -hmm. it's a job yeah yeah Yeah. and, and like I said we live in a celebrity culture you know and that's and we don't celebrate working class artists we definitely should and it shows (laughs) yeah and my last question so you've got two boys well now men what what is one thing about raising male children that you you're glad you taught to your kids that you weren't taught as a kid that it's okay to fail that you know my dad was military he was an engineer and you know this sort of ties in a little bit to to what we were talking about before my dad was he was not allowed to play trumpet growing up because his mom they were super poor and they lived in downtown cleveland and his mom told the music teacher well, he's going to have to buy a trumpet, you know, when he was a little kid, you know, which seems insane. You know, he, the, the teacher was like, no, we'll just, we'll help him out. We know he doesn't have a lot of money. We'll, we'll rent him one for free or he'll be able to borrow one. Yeah, but then he'll need lessons. And, you know, just like living in this, you know, and so that was taught to me, like I was saying about being taught, like the roles, like my dad. So what he did, he became a worker, like, and not only a worker, like a high achiever in scholastics and, you know, was a nuclear engineer and, you know, just did everything to the nth degree, you know, raised six kids and provided for them. And, and, you know, so of course I'm going to feel less than, you know, compared to, because he dropped his dreams, you know? Right. And so with my kids, they saw, like I said, they saw me have to, they saw me still being a father in their form and being involved in their lives, but also doing my thing and trying things and failing it and not quitting, you know, just because it was hard and doing at least some aspect of my life that I enjoyed doing and that I got something out of. And they, 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 they see that that's okay to, to give that stuff a try. 
and 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 they know it's okay to fail. And I always tell them as well that you know they should talk to somebody if they're struggling, you know, and, and that it's okay to struggle. And they can talk to me or each other. They're really close to each other. They live together now, which is funny because I'm just they're like they're they're like a, the odd couple. You know? <laughs> a little oil and water. Yeah, a little bit at times. And but but they're friends with you. And and I just tell them just you, you don't have to talk to me talk to somebody, like get it out, put that stuff out on the floor. Like it's okay to struggle. Like it's okay to be human. You don't have to overachieve. You can just work on being decent, you know, and you don't have to be the Michael Jordan of whatever you, you know, because that's, that's insane. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to accomplish anything for me. I tell them, you know, like impress yourself, fine, you know, work on yourself, do whatever, but but just try to be decent and decent to other people. And just, you know, like you said, just make progress as a human being, because I didn't know it was okay to fail. You know, I, my dad watched me mow the lawn, you know, <laughs> like, like I didn't, wow. you know, it was just, you know, and then that's fine. It, it's, it's part of my story, but, but it was like, you know, I got yelled at. I mean, I didn't just get like voice raised in my mind. My dad was kind of a rageaholic, you know, when he was alive and, for whatever reason, his depression and his the alcoholism and his family and stuff, it just breeds more of that behavior. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't hold it against him, quote unquote, but I, I see where some of my stuff comes from. And, and like we were saying earlier, it ties back into having some compassion for I was trained to be the way I am to some degree. Well, my dad was trained. If I get, get to look at myself that way, then maybe I should look at my father that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and to sort of see where this comes from generationally and through our training and, and to sort of have a little bit of compassion for that, that person was, you know, that that person didn't know better, you know, and, and, and my dad was taught that. And anyway, he, you know, but, but, you know, he got screamed at for making a mistake, you know, on a math problem, you know, like, yell, like he screamed at, not like, Sean, what are you doing? You know, not like that, but right. like, like oh, the crap out of you, like right. make you want to hide in the corner. And so, you know, my kids, that would be one difference, you know, with me, you know, I'm a big loud dude, you know, so I could raise my voice. It's not to say I didn't put them in the place a couple of times, but, <laughs> but, but overall they, 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 they knew it was okay to make mistakes and, and it was okay to fail and it was okay to admit it and to learn from it and to, and to, to, to go to people if they were struggling, you know, hopefully, you know. All that is super important, super important. And, you know, people think that these are things that parents tell their kids all the time, but they don't. So the fact that you are relaying this and kind of like looking at your own experience and, you know, being a, a more compassionate, more sensitive parent speaks volumes. Yeah. A lot of respect for that. Well, thanks. I, you know, it's taken a lot of years. You know, I wish I would have learned a lot of it when I was younger, you know, because some of it I did, you know, my, my father would jump out of my mouth every morning. Exactly. <laughs> Dad would come out, you know, and, and, and then I, you got to forgive yourself for that, you know, 
and, uh, and then talk to them about it. And then they have to also understand that it's okay to get angry. It's okay to get frustrated with yourself, the people around you. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to have fears. It's like everything is okay. And then, but if you, you know, it turns into an action, then you have to make amends for that and, and look at that and try to learn from it. And it's sort of like all these, I don't know, paradoxes, I guess, is, you know, it's careful what you think. And at the same time, they're just thoughts. That's right. <laughs> like forget you just thoughts and they're just feelings and they're not facts and they're not actions. But if you're not careful, they can turn into actions. If you obsess on them, if you know, they become that thing that you are and then you turn them into actions and then, you know, then you are your actions. And a lot of times you got to pay for those actions. Absolutely. As always, I got to give a shout out to Kenny for being so honest and open about his feelings. I'm, I'm so blown away sometimes by the openness with which the guests on this show talk and, and it feels so natural uh i i am is not a veteran interviewer by any stretch of the imagination but i love sitting down and having these conversations and having them feel so pure is probably not the right word but they they just feel so natural and uh, hopefully the information that we're not information. Hopefully the stuff that we're talking about here is resonating. That's kind of all I ask for. A big reason I do this podcast is so we can start to normalize mental illness and mental health, and we can bring the feelings that can cause suicidal ideation to the fore. As I record this intro, I can think back to eight years ago this week, and this is not an intro, but an outro. And uh, I was in a psych ward eight years ago this week, uh, the first of two times that I was admitted to the psych ward, and it was it was a hell of an experience and it's another story for another time. Uh, but I say that I just want to drop that in there so that anyone listening knows that they're not alone. Hopefully between Kenny's story and my story and the other 40 something stories we have already posted as a part of this, as, as a part of this podcast, people can listen and try to understand that they're not the only ones out there and hopefully can sort of own their truth and move forward with that in mind. Once again, you can check out Kenny's new album Reservoir on any platform through which you enjoy music, including Bandcamp and KennyRoby.net. He is KennyRoby, K-E-N-N-Y-R-O-B-Y on Instagram and Twitter if you would like to know more about him. I also wanted to bring up the Neil Cassell Music Foundation, whose aim is to inspire future musicians and to bring mental health support to musicians already on the path. Make sure you check them out. Donate if you can. Give them a follow. It is neilcasalmusicfoundation.org. N-E-A-L-C-A-S-A-L musicfoundation.org. So this podcast is all about helping men become better men, sharing stories, talking about being open and practicing, being truthful and honest and having feelings and all that good stuff, but done in a way that's maybe not so, I, I want to say obvious about it, or, or it, I don't want it to feel like a, a, an after school special or anything like that. It's just people conversing, trying to make the world a better place, trying to make themselves better people. So if you support that mission, if you want men to be better, better men, if you want people to be better people, make sure you rate, you subscribe, and you follow this podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your patronage. Uh, we appreciate you listening and spreading the word. I am on social media. Instagram is Detox Pod Guy. Twitter is Tiz Mike Joseph. You can email me even 
because people still do that, by the way, at detoxpod at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. If you have a guest that you'd like to suggest, if you want to be on the show yourself, just hit me up. I am here and I am waiting for you, standing by the hotline, waiting for the phone to ring so you can tell me, A, how much you love detoxicity, and B, how much you want to be on the show or you know somebody who wants to be on the show or you have constructive criticism or whatever. I just love communicating with people and uh, I'm not being sarcastic about that last part. (laughs) Also not sarcastic about this, as I record this, we are still in the middle of the COVID-19 hellscape. So I really, really want to urge you to, you know, just protect yourself, protect the others around you, wear a mask, uh, social distance, do all that good stuff. Just in the name of empathy and being kind to one another, it's important that we all stay safe and healthy, so please do so. Thank you for listening.